So yeah, as this is the first class of the series, I usually cover just some real basics of meditation. Um, and then as we go along, I kind of puzzle together little pieces of the practice from different angles. And I often would also start class by asking you guys if you have any questions or anything specifically you want me to talk about. So also just know that for next class, we'll begin by me just saying if there's anything specifically you guys want me to talk about, I can address that. And it'll help kind of guide the course of the talk, right? But um, I would say for tonight's talk, and because we did the sharing and we're starting a little later, it'll be maybe a little bit of a shorter talk, but we'll see. Um, yeah, I would really like to just touch on some of the basics of the practice. I think that just from listening to you guys talk the why, why are we meditating? Um, I would almost say that each of you carries a little piece of that. So whether it's connecting back to yourself, right, or trying to declutter the mind or have clarity um, or trying to be less reactive, these are, these are all right answers, so to say, you know. Um, because the direction that this practice brings you, all of those things, right, become possible in that. I have a podcast that I listen to called Mysterious Universe which I like, and sometimes it's, you know, stories about Bigfoots and UFOs and different things like this. Um, but then they also talk about the latest technology and also sometimes spirituality and different things that are going on. And they just spoke about uh, a book that came out. And it's by um, Richie Davidson and uh, Daniel Goleman, who has written some books with the Dalai Lama on emotional intelligence, and they're both from Harvard, and you know, one's like a neuroscientist, and I think the other might just be a psychologist. Um, done a lot of research onto the brain, onto emotions, but also really heavily at the moment focusing on meditation and mindfulness and what that does for us, how that starts to change and shift. And one of the questions that came up a while back for them is they said, um, what is the difference between an altered state and a, a learned trait, right, or an altered trait? So an altered state could be, you know, if you just take some drugs, right, and then suddenly you're in this, wow, really weird place and different stuff's happening and some people feel really enlightened in that place, right? Or if you're sitting in meditation and suddenly you have these really powerful insights and it's very clear or you hear somebody talking and suddenly something clicks into place and it makes sense. That in, and there's this moment where there's a very visceral sense, or right in the church, right? This very visceral sense um, of presence that there's something, this is a very special awake moment and it feels very different. Um, it almost feels holy and it feels very um, enlightened, right, or charged. And then you might go home and then, uh, you know, I'll see that the dog peed on the floor and I'll get really mad, right? Or I'll encounter my teenage child and I'll just start yelling at them because they didn't clean up the room or whatever, right? 
And then you say, oh, okay, I guess I didn't um, keep as much of that as I thought I would, <laughs> right? That you have these amazing experiences, but then you go back to your life and the same things trigger them. This was also very apparent for me after being in the monastery for eight years and then two years traveling to, mon you know, to sacred sites around India and places in Australia and really developing my practice. And then I come home and then I live with my parents for a year. Yeah, and you know, you can imagine, I think they say, if you want to see how good your practice is, go home for a Thanksgiving dinner with your parents and then you'll, you'll see, right? Um, and a lot of the things that I thought that I had gained when I put myself back in that old habitual environment, they were not there anymore. They were not there anymore. And I was, wow, and that was, what an amazing lesson that was. And, and also they say the same thing about, you know, death, for instance, right? Because we're all one day going to die and you're going to have to go through the dying process. And, um, you know, I think uh, Ram Das, who's you know, one of the great spiritual teachers of our time, he had a stroke, you know, and, um, and I think Jack Cornfield was talking to him afterwards, and he's like, oh, you know, so he had to kind of face death, you know, how'd you do? And he was like, you know, I didn't, didn't pass the test this time, you know. He was just kind of lying there looking at the, and just everything he had learned, he kind of just forgot, right? And it's really, um, you know, when it comes down to it, you know, what is this all about, right? We sit here, we have all this great information, I'll give you a talk, and you'll go home, and oh, I know all this new spiritual stuff now. You know, but is it really now a part of you, or is it just, you know, information that you're carrying, but in a real dire situation, or even if you get sick? You know, anytime I get sick, I, I'm just the biggest baby, right? I'm just, I don't want to be there, and I'm complaining, and, uh, you know, people say, well, what happened to your meditation? I was like, I don't care about meditation, I'm miserable, I have a headache, you know, I'm miserable, right? So how, how does that all work together? How do these spiritual states that we find ourselves in, but how do they translate into traits, something that's, that's more long-standing? So they've been doing lots of testing by hooking up people to, um, you know, forgive my ignorance to scientific terminology, so I don't know what the machines are that they use, but they measure the different brain waves, and they measure the parts of the brain that are being activated. And um, actually, they told a funny story because they just came out with a new book about this, right? I think the book even might be called Altered Traits. Um, that they took all of this equipment and they went to Dharamsala, which is actually, I, mean, I went there with Johan. This is our group went, this is one of the places, and this is kind of up in the Himalayas, and this is where the Dalai Lama has his community in exile in his temple. And so they went to the Dalai Lama and expressed what they wanted to do, and he's like, oh, great. And he wrote them like this letter of you know, recommendation. And he told them that there's, you know, there's monks meditating in kind of caves and huts and things up, uphill from where they are. And they said there's like hundreds of pounds of machinery that they, you know, took them days to get from, you know, Delhi up there with it. And so they take all this machinery and then they kind of start going up towards, you know, where, where they were told there'll be monks meditating. And then they started finding these monks. And they had, a, you know, a, a translator, a monk with them, and this letter from the Dalai Lama. And they'd kind of go to these monks and retreat in these caves and give them the letters. And he'd, Monks would read the letter and hear from the translator, and they'd say, so, like, you know, can you help us? And the monks would just look at them and think and say, no. Yeah. And they're like, but, you know, science, it's important. And I was like, yeah, not interested, really. You know, and they went monk after monk after monk, and across the board they got no's, they were shut down. And one of the answers they got is the monks were saying, well, how do we know that your science is really going to be able to measure what it is that we do? You know, we don't know if the realizations that we get are measurable on your scans. What if 
you measure us and on your scans there's nothing and then you Western scientists think that Buddhism is just bunk and it's fake and it doesn't work because you don't actually know how to measure what it is that we're doing. You know, so it's kind of this thing and um, they left kind of empty-handed from this encounter. But over the years, they've still been working on it and the Dalai Lama's been coming, he comes to Harvard and MIT also and he's been working more with these communities. And he started getting some monks kind of on his side. This one monk, Mathieu Ricard, who was a French translator for the Dalai Lama. And he was also, you know, some, like a, some kind of like a, an engineer. You know, he has a, also a very brilliant mind, uh, university degree. Um, and I think as he was getting his postdoc, he decided for his postdoc to become a monk. So he's like a Tibetan monk now. Um, so they started kind of getting these inroads to the Tibetan communities and started getting slowly monks. And they eventually now have 21 monks that have, you know, over 1,000 hours of meditation, if not maybe 10,000 or 20,000 hours of meditation under their belt to study, to see what it is that meditation really does to the brain. And they told the story that they measured this one monk, Minyor Rinpoche, who, um, I think he wrote a book, he wrote a couple of books. One's, I think, The Joy of Living. Um, he's really funny. If you ever hear him talk, he's just hilarious, very, almost cartoon-like, very comical and very quick. And, um, but his parents were, were um, you know, both very spiritual people, and his grandparents are very spiritual in, in the Tibetan community. So there's a lot of pressure on him. And he said, you know, when he was on his first retreat, he had, he said, I didn't have, uh, you know, a breakthrough. He's like, I, I had actually like a, a nervous breakdown. But, but that breakdown was amazing, so I guess I had a nervous breakthrough, right? It's kind of how he describes his process, right? Like, because he had a lot of anxiety and things. And um, so they, they were able to measure him. He's been practicing for a long time, and he actually went on a, a long retreat for four years, just disappeared into the, or three years, I think, just disappeared into the Himalayas. No one knew where he was, and he just appeared a couple years later with like a beard, and he's like, okay, I'm back, and now I'm ready to lead the community. So they, you know, put on the, um, you know, the, the, the webby net of sensors onto his head. I actually had this done to me as well in Germany once. And, but they put on this web of sensors. And you know, at first they realized, oh, it's harder than we thought because when you shave your head, your head starts to get a little callous. So it's harder to get the sensors attached. I had the same problem. I, I did this at the Max Planck Institute um, that they tried to measure something, I don't know. But um, so you know, it took them a while to finally get, they said it would be 10 minutes. It took them three hours. They got everything attached. And they said, okay, here's how we're gonna do this study, right? They said, you're going to meditate for one minute on compassion, and then you're going to take a 30-second break. Then you're going to meditate for one minute on compassion, then take it. So kind of like that. So we have like a control, right, to say like, this is the mind when he's meditating, and this isn't when it's not meditating, okay? So he's like, okay, right? So he sits down, and they kind of start the clock. They're like, okay, yes, when you're ready. And then as they're kind of saying this, suddenly on the screen, there's this huge, like, electrical spike, right? And they kind of think, oh gosh, you know, because all the sensors, and if you move slightly, the sensors go off. So when I had my study done at Max Planck, it was the same thing. They were testing me, and they said a lot of the data was difficult for them to read, because if you just move your, you know, if you furl your brow, if you move your scalp a little bit, it throws off all the machines. Like, oh, okay, he's kind of moving. So they kind of went to tell him to, you know, not to move, but then they see that he's just kind of sitting there. And then they go back, and the spike, it wasn't a spike, it went up and it just stayed up. And then after a minute, it just dropped back down. 
And then after 30 seconds, it spiked again. And they said it was like an 800% an increase in like activity in these parts. You know. So at, what, at first, what they thought was a, a mechanical failure, they realized, oh my god, like, this is the first time that anybody has recorded anything like this you know, um, you know, from a Western science point of view. And so they've done this with a couple you know, 21 now meditators. And after kind of slowly processing the data, and they're still going through the data, and they're still getting more people, so it's by no means finished. But something that they've started realizing is that when the monks are in resting state, so not when they're doing the meditation, but actually when they stop and they're in resting state, they said that their minds are, are emitting a high level of, of gamma waves, that the minds are residing in, in gamma, the gamma states. And they said, so what that is, just to put it in perspective, so delta, I believe, it's when you're sleeping, right? So it's that deep kind of state. And then um, I believe beta state, it's just a very normal kind of like hanging around, maybe chatting a bit like this. And then the alpha state, it's like very, very focused, like when you're taking a test, when you're talking. And gamma, it's even a state above that. And this might be maybe in sports when someone's like in the zone or someone, right? These states where you're like really kind of super present and focused and like really, you know, and often for people to get to that state, they need like a really charged situation to bring them there. And then they're like exhausted afterwards. But they actually started measuring some of these monks when they were sleeping, and they found when these monks are sleeping, they're also in gamma state. So they were saying that just a, a, a complete shift in these meditators in, in terms of where their brains are, where the activity is at, how it's acting. And also with Minyo Rinpoche, who's 41, they measured the, the gray matter in his brain, and they said that he has the brain of like a 30-year-old, that his brain just isn't decomposing the way that other brains are, that it's still just like a very young, healthy brain. So they started really finding on a, on a, from a Western science perspective, right? Because until now, it's, it's a lot of anecdotal things. Like all of us here, you know, we can meditate and we can go into our lives and, and tell everyone how great meditation is. And they're like, yeah, yeah, okay, fine, you know. You know, they don't really, they'll listen or they won't listen. But now we're actually coming out with real hard scientific evidence from a Western perspective that says that something is happening here and something really huge and powerful is happening with this, with this work through meditation. So it's really cool to have that validation, I guess, on the material level that says, yeah, this is actually happening. Um, but from an experiential viewpoint is ultimately the point of this, right? So, at the end of the day, none of us really care if you hooked us up to a machine, what that machine would say. We care how happy am I, how peaceful am I, how relaxed am I. <clears throat> so going into the meditation today, going into this round, and again, like I said, every, every class I'll talk a little bit more about a little, some different aspects, and we'll slowly piece it together. Um, the very first thing that I'll say to you today, kind of as the foundation, of everything we're going to do in this class is to remember that you're here because you want peace. You're here because you want to relax. You're here because you want space. Yeah? You're here because you want to feel better. Yeah? So knowing that you're here for these things to really relax and chill out and just kind of come down a little bit. If at any point during your meditation you realize that you're making yourself stressed out, 
if you realize you're becoming more tense, if you realize you're getting more distracted, yeah, just make a note of, to that, you know, for yourself and know that you're going in the wrong direction. Because a lot of people, as they meditate, the same mechanism in their mind that they use all day long, which we could call the control freak, right, which is always trying to hold on to things, to try to make things the way that they want, to, to get what they want, right, to get a result that they want, that mechanism is why we're stressed in the first place, right? I want my teenage kid to be a certain way, right? I want this, just listen to me, you know, do this thing, yeah, right? Yeah, too much stuff is happening at work, right? Yeah, I just, I want, I want to do everything. I want to be a good work. I want to be on top of all my projects. I want to exceed, but then I'm burnt out, right? So, okay, I can't do both of those things at once. Yeah, so we start to see that, that the reason that our mind is the way it is, it's not just kind of a, a happenstance. It's our karma. It's the way that we react to the world is causing that in us. And if you bring that same pattern, that behavioral pattern, that mechanism into your meditation, you're going to find more of the same. And I'll say this from experience, that I spent probably about five years sitting there trying to get peace from my breath. Okay, so trying to get peace from my breath. So I'd be breathing. And I learned this thing called mindfulness of breathing. So I'd breathe, and I'd feel the breath coming in and out, and I'd know that there should be some kind of relaxation. So I would really be kind of like, like forcing, holding on to that breath to try to get some kind of peace out of it. And finally, I spoke to this teacher, Acham Brahm, he came through, and I said, yeah, it's not working for me, really. And He's like, well, how, do you, how often do you meditate? And I was like, well, every morning we sit in the monastery for an hour, and then every evening for half hour, and then even maybe in between sometimes. And he's like, well, how about you just try throwing the meditation out the window? And I was like, well, what do you mean? He said, yeah, don't try to meditate. Just relax. And it was so simple and obvious and yet so foreign. And that just made this click for me in my mind. And then I sat there, and I really didn't try to meditate. I didn't try to do anything. I stopped trying. I allowed myself just to relax. And I just sat there, and I relaxed. And suddenly, I went into the deepest meditation that I'd been in in a long time. And I stayed in there for about an hour and a half. And that, and that carried on with me throughout the whole day, and then into the next day when I sat again. And we can, really, we can really feel what it is that we're doing to ourselves. We can feel, am I creating more stress or am I creating more peace? Yeah, am I getting more tense or am I creating more relaxation? And we shouldn't be so focused on this thing called meditation that we're here to do. You should really be more focused on the results. Yeah, because when you know that I'm not trying to meditate, I'm trying to relax. I'm not trying to meditate, I'm trying to have peace. You can already just start aiming for those things that you're interested in. You know, I want to relax, so then relax. I want peace, then be peaceful. Right? If you're having thoughts, you know, are those thoughts bothering you? 
or is it that you think you're not supposed to be thinking, so you're at war with your own minds, creating more stress? Right? So if we want peace and relaxation and spaciousness, then it really behooves us to start accepting more, right? Start opening, start allowing. If there's thoughts, then say, okay, there's thoughts. If there's some discomfort in my leg or my back, then I say, okay, then there's some discomfort in my leg or my back. If there's a noise outside, if it's too hot, if it's cold, if it's stuffy, if it's this or if it's that, then you just say, okay. You know, you don't fight against any of it. You just say, okay, then that's there. And you also do the whole thing with some kindness, right? So there's a lot of people that practice meditation very kind of militantly. They really sit and if I push themselves through and they kind of will themselves and they fight through it. Um, that's good for building up endurance and patience, but ultimately that's not the practice. That doesn't really bring you anywhere. Yeah, so this isn't about really, it's not that hard force either. It's really about being kind. You know, you want to relax, so then relax. Because you're never going to have it all under control. Yeah. Life is always changing. It's hard to get everything right. And even if you get everything right, it doesn't stay there very long, then it keeps going, goes somewhere else. Right? So instead of always trying to control everything to have it the right way, that we can feel totally relaxed, right? If I can control everything around me, then I can be peaceful. Yeah, that works a little bit, but not really. Yeah, then somebody gets sick, then there's a storm, then people don't behave you want, so you snap, or you're stuck in traffic, so you get angry. Or you get upset at yourself, because you're not really doing it right. So instead of thinking that if I control my environment enough, then I'll find my peace, start learning how to change your relationship to your experience. To say that peace is available now. Right now, in this very moment, peace is available. And it has always been available, and it always will be available. And all that I need to do is recognize that, and accept that, and really believe that. Right? There's a faith involved in this practice, too. Because if you don't believe that, you're never going to even look. And it's kind of the greatest trick in the world, that you have to believe it to actually experience it. Because the mind, the ego you love, saying, no, it's not here. I can't. No, I'm not happy. I need something else. I feel incomplete. I feel unsatisfied. I'm unhappy. Yeah, it always wants more. And it really doesn't want to accept that if it just lets go, it has everything. It's fine. Yeah, so we really, in this class today, for the meditation, we're going to really allow ourselves to start feeling it, to start believing it, to start accepting it. Yeah, just let it all go, let it all drop, just be. Not think something's supposed to be different. You're not supposed to be different. Your practice is not supposed to be different. Yeah, it is the way that it is. And really just let it be. Yeah, and just put the weight down. Okay, just let it go. So with that, we'll just go into our first sitting meditation. And for today, really just sit in any way that you feel comfortable. Um, if you're on the floor, I find personally just any kind of cross-legged position that allows you to kind of be upright and stable at the same time. You can also do like kneeling positions, it's fine. Just however you feel, like you could sit for about 10 minutes comfortably. And, and again, as the course goes on, we'll talk more. I'll help you in your positions. And, and again, if anyone wants a chair at any time, please take one. It's fine.